Well, let's uh, take our Bibles and, and turn in them uh, to the book of 1 Corinthians as we continue our journey through this letter. We're going to look at the 11th chapter, verses 17 through 34, <clears throat> in a message that I have entitled, Corporate Conduct. Corporate Conduct. So with that, let's, uh, let's take our hearts <clears throat> once more to the Lord. Well, Father, we're just so honored to be here, and we're just praying, Lord, that as you've been moving and ministering, now you continue to do so through the power of your word. We thank you uh, that your word is spirit and it is life. And so we're asking you, God, just to continue to breathe life into this time and that the seed of your word would find good soil in our hearts today. We love you. We give this time to you. Uh, Lord, may we give our, our attention uh, to you. Lord, help us to not be distracted, uh, but to stay focused in on what you've called us to. Uh, here for today. In Jesus' name we pray. What do we say? Amen. Amen. Uh, on the, the eve of our Lord's betrayal, he broke bread uh, with his disciples. There they were in that upper room where he initiated and facilitated the Passover meal with them. The Passover uh, was a time, sorry about this here, I'm going to move this out of the way. Uh, hopefully that's, <laughs> I don't know what I just did that for, but, um, the Passover was a time of commemoration, a time of celebration, a time of expectation and anticipation. They would reflect on, they would rejoice in God's deliverance and how he set them free in their ancient history from the chains and bondage of Egypt. And it was through the shedding of the blood of the Passover lamb that they, by faith, uh, were set free from Egypt and spared the penalty of death. And it was to serve of, as a foreshadow that would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who would shed his blood for the sin, not of Israel exclusively, but for all of humanity throughout all time and human history, that we, through faith in him, would be set free from the chains and the power of sin and its penalty of death through the laying down of his life on our behalf. And he would take those, those basic elements, the, the bread and the cup, and what we might call communion or the Lord's Supper, and memorialize his work upon the cross for us through them. The bread speaking of his broken body for us. The cup speaking of his shed blood for us. And he told his disciples, as we'll read today, that as often as they ate the bread, as often as they drank the cup, they proclaimed his death until he comes again. Now, he didn't tell them how often that they were to eat and drink, simply just as often as you eat and drink. Whenever they partook, they were to do so in remembrance of him. And what we discover in the book of Acts is that initially, at least seemingly, the early church did this on the daily. We read in Acts chapter 2 and verse 47, so continuing daily, notice, with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. And as the apostles 
went out and established churches on the mission field, this was an ordinance that they established that they would put in place. And it seems that several of the churches uh, adopted a pattern, at least in some measure, uh, on a weekly basis, that uh, they'd come together after, you know, for a time of study. Afterward, they would enjoy a meal, kind of a a potluck kind of a thing. And uh, it would uh, culminate... As their time came to a close in remembering the Lord in this manner. Uh, but Corinth, you know, where Paul established this as a time of commemoration and celebration, anticipation, essentially it seems that it disintegrated into a time of separation and self gratification. And they had managed to take this sacred rite uh, that the Lord had entrusted to his own and somehow twist it into sacrilege. It had gone from sacred to kind of sacrilege. And the Christians of Corinth, well, they seem to struggle in much the same way so many do today. And that is a sense of entitlement seemed to kind of permeate and infiltrate their culture. And this most selfless act of Jesus became a time of self-centered actions amongst the Corinthians. And here in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11... Paul seeks to set things uh, in order, in their proper order for them once again. And so you're with me. Let's turn our attention here to verse 17 of chapter 11, 1 Corinthians. Paul says, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And he says, man, I kind of, I believe it. And he says, for there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Again, it's almost as if Paul were writing to any number of churches, you know, or church gatherings even today. He says, you come together, uh, you know, but ultimately it's for the worse. It's not for the better. Now, to their credit, let me say this. They gathered together, okay, which is uh, something far too neglected by too many Christians today in, in direct disobedience to Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 24 and 25. Guys, the Bible is clear, and let us consider one another, notice, in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day that is the day of Christ's return approaching. He says, encourage one another, exhort one another. In what manner? Hey, man, I'll see you at church Sunday, right? I mean, we're going to be there. You need to be there. Let's serve one another. Let's bless and build up one another. Stir up and challenge one another unto good works. You see, are, are you serving the body of Christ and in so doing, serving Christ himself? And if not, the question I would just pose to you is, well, why not? Because we are to provoke one another unto good works. And listen, guys, I'm so grateful for the ability to have online services. So grateful to be able to get the message of God's word into the homes and into the hearts of those who can't join us Uh, for legitimate reasons. You know, maybe they have a health issue, maybe they are working, whatever the case may be. But listen, getting comfortable staying at home because you can just join online isn't right, okay? You're not together with the body. You're not 
you know, you're isolated from the body. You're not serving. You're not edifying. You're not building up the body. And those gifts that God has entrusted to you are now lying dormant within you. You've kind of buried that which he's entrusted to you. And the Bible speaks about that, doesn't it? My mentality, your mentality in coming together as believers shouldn't be, well, what will I get out of it, you know? But it should be, how can I build into it, okay? In what way can I bless and be a part of it? The, the Corinthians were coming together, and so we commend them there. But sadly, it was for the worse and not for the better, and Paul says, first of all, you guys come together. There are divisions, uh, you know, there. And, and not just theologically. We've discussed that in the past, haven't we? But pragmatically, he said, you know, you're dividing into these little cliques, these little cell groups, these little social classes, and you're creating problems. And you're pushing people to have to decide, you know, uh, who they're going to stand with, where they're going to go. Now, he says, that's not good. He says, but God will use it. Isn't it fascinating how uh, God can take even things the enemy means for evil and he can use them for good? And Paul says that God will allow divisions. He will allow these factions to take place so that it will eventually become evident who is genuine, who is truly godly, uh, and who is not. What was meant to be a a wonderful time of fellowship had, you know, produced factions. And instead of just dining, they were dividing. And, and Paul is saying God is going to use that to show you who's truly spiritual, spiritually mature and who is simply self-serving, you see. Now, John spoke of something similar to this when he wrote, they went out, those dividers, those faction kind of Folks, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. And so, you, you know, you've got these churches split, people leaving, this and that, and, uh, and dividing. Now, does that mean that anytime someone leaves a church that they truly aren't saved or, you know, they're not part of the body of Christ? No, of course not. But it does mean that God will use divisions and factions to prune and to purify the body of Christ, uh, the church. And so he says here in verse 20, therefore, when you come together in one place, he says, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. He, he's, he's kind of sarcastically or sort of showing them that they think they're doing one thing. It's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. He says, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. He says, what? Do you, have, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? He says, man, I don't praise you. Guys, the idea here is that in commemorating the most selfless act in world history, you have somehow managed to come to a place where you couldn't be more self-indulgent in what should be a time of commemoration, celebration, something that brings you together. 
you've managed to turn it into a time of separation and, and, and driving you apart. He says, the rich in your congregation are all glutting themselves while the poor are going hungry. He said, am I supposed to praise you in this? It's supposed to be like, good job, guys, way to go. He says, no, no way. Now, what he's talking about is, is what I mentioned in our time of introduction. They would come together uh, traditionally, historically, for these, they called them love feasts, agape feasts, kind of like I said, that potluck dinner. Uh, but in the ancient Roman world, guys, there were literally millions and millions of slaves who essentially had nothing. Okay, And so they're struggling. Here they are. They know they're going to gather. They're struggling to kind of whip up some scalloped potatoes, you know. And uh, the wealthier, man, they're bringing in porterhouse steaks and racks of ribs and steamed veggies and all the stuff. And those who were well-to-do, they would, they would recognize social class and status. And those who were well-to-do, they're, you know, they're getting in line first. They're piling up their plates. They're you know, stacking the food a mile high. And, and then when those who are poor finally make it to the table, I mean, it's like there's nothing left, Right? And so there's all this selfishness. There's all this self-serving going on. And then at the end of the time, you know, it's like someone's like, you know, we should remember the Lord uh, or something along those lines. And, and they would partake of communion. But Paul is saying, you guys are, are disgracing the observance <coughs> of the Lord's Supper. And, and I get it, you guys. This may seem a little bit um, you know, strange to us. Talking about, you know, one of you is glutting yourself, the other's getting drunk, and it's like, wait, what's going on here, you know? Uh, but you need to understand that these wild, kind of riotous banquets were very common uh, in the ancient pagan world. And they would honor their pagan gods through all these, uh, like I said, kind of riotous banquets and stuff. And uh, so those who were coming out of that environment, you know, there were elements of that that had kind of crept into their time together whereby they were supposed to be honoring the Lord and then in their common meal. And some of them would drink in excess. They would wind up drunk. Listen, how many of you realize that when someone comes to Christ, you know, we want to see everything change instantly and immediately, but typically they grow over time. You know what I'm saying? God saves us. He transforms us inwardly, but then he goes to work changing us practically little by little, making us more like Jesus. So it's not uncommon to see a new believer sort of stumble or do something they shouldn't and this and that, and you come alongside them, you encourage them, you try and, and, and remind them. But Paul is saying, you know, you guys ought to be ashamed of yourselves in disgracing those who have nothing by allowing them to go hungry while you pig out, you know? Listen, here, here's the thing. I guess, <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen next time we have a potluck. But the point of a church potluck isn't to glut your gut. Can I just say that? It's not to stuff your gut. It's to fellowship. It's to build community, to build unity. Now, listen, it's okay to be first in line. You know, we don't want everybody standing around like, I don't want to go first, you know, kind of a thing. But just exercise a little self-control right? That whole fruit of the spirit thing, love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, long suffering. And there's that, that one at the end that always reaches out and bites us. Remember what that one was? Self-control. Self-control. You know, look, it's again, 
just make sure that there's enough for everyone. Just kind of be you know, moderate about what you do. Look, pile your plate on the second time through. Okay? He says, look, if you want to make sure you're topped off, then hit a drive-thru on the way home. You know? Or eat something before you get to church. You know? In short, as believers, we're to be considerate of others. Okay? Even outside the body of Christ. How much more our brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, uh, and so remember these words back in chapter 10 where Paul said, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. In the book of Philippians, we read it this way. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, Let each esteem others better than himself. Here's a little practical application of that. If you're at the front of the line with a sky-high pile of food on your plate, whose (laughs) well-being are you seeking? I ain't thinking about that guy back there at the end. I'm making sure I get topped off, you know. And he says, hey, listen, don't do that. If, If you're really starving, then just, you know, Hit Taco Bell later. You know, just hang out and fellowship and, and, and build up one another. Now, verse 23, he says, so here he's bringing them back into focus, right? Like, this is what you're doing. You're glutting your gut. You're neglecting people. You're doing all this selfish stuff in the, in the context of the most selfless act in human history. That's not, that's not what I taught you, okay? And here's what he says. He says, for I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Paul says, look, this ordinance that I established among you wasn't something that I just made up because it seemed like something that would be you know, nice to do. He says, look, I received from the Lord. And, and we don't know how he received this. You know, I don't, I don't know. It was something supernatural as, as the Lord would. It wasn't altogether uncommon for the Lord to minister to Paul in a supernatural kind of a way. Or, or if perhaps it was one of the other apostles, perhaps, uh, or maybe it was Luke. They, you know, they, they spent all kinds of time together on their missionary journeys. And Luke was telling him of his research and the things that he had found because it reads really close Uh, to Luke's account, what we read right here. But ultimately, you guys, it doesn't really matter because when the Lord ministers to your heart, the vessel or the means through which it comes is really irrelevant, okay? In other words, what's relevant is that we receive from the Lord, And so here you are, you're in a Bible study, and we're going through, and we're talking about things, and maybe something begins to resonate in you. Well, I hope that later you're not going, man, you know, Jeff really spoke to my heart. No, I didn't. The Lord did. I may be a vessel, but but receive from, from the Lord. 
And I want you to note that the Lord, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread and gave thanks. He knew what was coming down the pike, but we read that he was thankful. Thankful for the Father's provision, uh, his plan, his purpose, for the time that he had with his friends and those whom he loved and those who loved him. Oftentimes when we uh, partake of, of communion, you'll hear it being referred to maybe a little more liturgically or whatever as the Eucharist. And all that means, it's, it's the word that comes from the Greek word right here for give, giving thanks. That's all it means, to give thanks or to be thankful but he took the bread. And when, you, when you, we read of taking bread, guys, don't think of like a loaf of wonder bread, okay? Uh, he took bread. Think of like matzah, you know, a flat bread. There it is, and it's, it's even got like some, like some grill marks on it, like a stripe. It's got a bunch of like looks like toothpick holes in it. You know what I'm talking about? And, and the idea is there's stripes. It's been pierced. You're, you're beginning to, to understand. It's unleavened. It's flat. He, he took it. He broke it. He said, take eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. And Paul places the emphasis on what Jesus said about the meaning of his own death. And as there they were, and they would look, and they would see the stripes on the, the bread. They would see the, the hole in the bread. It's speaking of, you know, by his stripes we are healed. He was pierced for our transgressions. And you begin to, to see what's taking place here. The bread it spoke of, it painted this, this powerful picture of, of, of his own body, unleavened. Why? Because leaven in your Bible is a type or it's a picture of sin. And, and, and so it just takes, why? Because it just takes a little bit. You take a little pinch of leaven, you put it in the loaf. Does it just like, does it just like swell up on the corner of the loaf? No, it permeates, it infiltrates, it impacts the whole thing, right? It just corrupts the whole thing. That's ultimately what's happening. And so no leaven because, listen, uh, it pointed to the sinless life of Christ, this is why the Passover bread was unleavened. The, the life of Christ, the body of Christ, which would be broken for you and for me. And guys, what's happening here is fascinating because Jesus, essentially, he's redefining the point of the Passover. Or, or at least, perhaps we should say, he's bringing fulfillment, clarity to the Passover. He's establishing a new covenant between God and man. Listen, who can do that? You know, I mean, think about that. Who has the power? I mean, who has the audacity to say the covenant that God has observed and recognized for the last 1,500 years or more through Moses is officially coming to a close as of this night? Think about that. God is, as of right now, establishing a new covenant with man, not through the law of Moses, but through the shedding of my blood. It's not about what you need to do for God, you know, based on law. It's about what I've done for you. Guys, only God can establish such a thing. And yet, here is Jesus doing just that. And so, what does that say of Jesus? Anybody know? There you go. He's God. He's God. But his body, unselfishly assumed, 
unselfishly given upon the cross, broken, not his bones, his body would be rent, would be torn, would be tattered, would be striped, would be pierced, broken, no bones broken, the body broken, not for any wrong of his own, but for us, for our sin. Do this, he says, in remembrance of me. When you partake of these elements, remember me, Jesus says. The unselfish, loving sacrifice for the sake of others. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. Now, people wonder uh, if the wine, you know, if it had alcohol in it, you know. I don't know why people wonder that, but they wonder. You know, was it fermented? Well, I would tell you personally, categorically, I believe no, and here's why. Because there was to be no leaven, right? No fermentation of any kind during the Passover meal. The blood of Christ was not tainted. Uh, It was unleavened. It was without sin. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. No longer are you to remember back to the blood of the Passover lamb in Egypt, but now you are to remember the Passover lamb of God, shedding his blood for the freedom of mankind from sin. Without the shedding of blood, the Bible is clear, there can be no remission, no forgiveness. Listen, guys, Jesus didn't just sort of like open the back door of heaven and kind of slip us in, you know, uh, just unnoticed. No, no. No, he opens the front door. He welcomes you as, as, as brothers, as sisters, of, as sons and daughters of the Father. Why? Because he paid the penalty of our sin. Isn't it interesting to think that nowhere in Scripture are we commanded to remember the Lord's birthday? We don't even know, really, when his birthday was. One thing we do know wasn't December 25th, you know. Not too many shepherds watching their flock by night in cold winter like that. But I mean, you know, whatever. The command is to remember his death day. Think about that. Now, generally speaking, we don't like to remember death days. But Jesus says, remember my death. Why? Because listen to me, as powerful as was his life, as were his teachings. It's not the words of Jesus or the life of Jesus or the teachings of Jesus that saves you. Your life in Christ is centered in his death. And if he wouldn't have died for you, come on somebody, you would not be alive in him. Do you understand that? He paid a debt. That's what we say, right? He paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. And so this new covenant, it's about an inward transformation, a cleansing from sin. It's about the will of God, the word of God being written in our hearts. It's not about a legal relationship with God predicated upon law. It's about a loving relationship with God uh, predicated on love, that loving relationship with God. 
You might just uh, jot it down. You can look it up later. It's Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 and 34. He talks about this new covenant that he would bring to pass and that he brought to pass in Christ. And so he says in verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Listen, when you partake of the Lord's supper, you, listen to me, you start preaching. You preach a message, the message of the death of Jesus Christ. You ever stop to realize that, to think about that? This word proclaim, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. It's the same exact word for preach, okay? Guys, I'm looking at a room full of preachers here today. You know what I'm saying? When, when you take communion, you are preaching, you are proclaiming, and you're proclaiming on multiple fronts. You're proclaiming to God how grateful you are for the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. You're proclaiming to the devil his defeat through the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. You're proclaiming the way of salvation to the world and making sure that everyone knows that you're headed for heaven, but not because of what you've done for God, but by his grace through faith in him and what he's done for you upon the cross, the breaking of his body, the pouring out of his blood, you see. So think about that. When you bow your head and partake of communion, you know, what are you proclaiming in your heart? Is it the message of, man, I hope the restaurant isn't too busy when this is over? Is it the message of, man, I can't wait to get to the game or see the game later? This is going to be a great, uh, you know, thing. Or is it the message of Jesus? I just want to thank you and praise you for your selfless sacrifice on my behalf upon the cross. And Lord, I can't wait to see you face to face. Because yes, we look back to the cross. We proclaim the Lord's death, but we also look forward till he comes again. And Jesus assured us that when we're all together in the kingdom, that he is going to personally host a banquet and we'll all partake together. And what a glorious day it will be when we all eat and drink with Jesus in his kingdom. Think about that. Therefore, Paul says, verse 27, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So guys, here, here's what I want you to see. Here's kind of the take home. Uh, um, we notice that partaking, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, that it should cause us to look backward, right, to the cross. It should cause us to look forward to His coming, 
And it should cause us to look inward to consider the position of our own heart before him. So we look backward, we look forward, we look inward. We get introspective. What is the position of our heart? However, I do want to address something here, and, and, and that is this. If you have maybe a King James version, any King Jamesers here? Okay, there's a handful of you, good. No, nothing wrong there. Um, but if you, or, or maybe if you've, maybe you've, you've, if you read it wrong, it's easy to read it wrong. You'll think that there's, Something here whereby, you, you know, you, you've got to, you must make yourself worthy to eat and, 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 and drink of the cup. The King James Version states that if you eat or drink unworthily, am I correct? Is that what it says? If you eat or drink unworthily, that you will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. And so you read that and you're kind of thinking, man, you know, like we said a little earlier, I, man, I haven't lived my best life this week. Um, so, I mean, um, I probably shouldn't take part in this. Maybe I should just kind of like hang out while everyone else is doing this because I don't think I'm going to be eating or drinking like worthily by any stretch. But I want to remind you that Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Is that not there, Regina? I had that scripture for you, but it's okay. I can even tell you what it is. It's Mark chapter 2 and verse 17. Hey, there it is. See, she was zoned in. She was zoned in. Um, in other words, when you're down because you've slipped or you've stumbled, or you've sinned, you know, I say to you, that's when you need to come to the table most of all, okay? Didn't we just spend a significant amount of time establishing the fact that we don't become worthy before God on the basis of what we do, but upon the basis of what he's done for us upon the cross? So why then would we spend all this time, establish this truth, and then suddenly take it upon ourselves to make ourselves worthy to partake? We can't. God, what? Do you remember what Paul said to the Galatians? Having begun in the Spirit, are you going to be made perfect now by the flesh? You know? The New King James, I teach out of the New King James, if you want to know, whatever. Um, but it, and there are other, other translations that really do a much better job here uh, by expanding on the word, by translating it an unworthy manner. Do you see that? He who partakes in an unworthy manner. Paul has been rebuking these Christians for being so flippant, so self-indulgent, so me first in their manner at their gatherings and taking the same self-centered kind of manner into the time that centers around the selfless sacrifice of Christ. Okay? So this isn't written with the thought of needing to excuse ourselves from the table because you're not worthy. Well, of course we're not worthy. That's why Jesus came, okay? But instead, Paul is preparing us. It's written with the intent to prepare us to receive it with a right heart, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that when you receive it that you've got to kind of, you know, again, maybe you're, maybe you're really like having this special communion, fellowship time with the Lord, and you can just sense his presence, and it's all great, and it's grand, and it's glorious. 
But maybe you're like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't really feel a whole lot here and, you know, whatever. Um, so what do I do? How do I, you know, listen, you don't have to kind of stare at the floor and kind of try to work up some sort of spiritual feeling uh, or anything like that. But guys, we just simply open our heart, recognize what Jesus did for you, that he is here with you, and that if you know him, he dwells in you, you know? And uh, just, if there's anything that you need to confess to him, then, hey, listen, take care of it. Thank him for his work, and then partake, right? Verse 28, let a man examine himself, and then let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. To be guilty of the body and blood is to not have a repentant heart. You see, after all, it was our sin that nailed him to the cross. It was his love for us that held him on the cross. And the Corinthians were like we can be. They were experts at examining everyone around them, but not so great at examining themselves. Okay? So in verse 29, he says, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, notice, you might underline it, we would not be judged. Quick question, anyone up for eating or drinking a little judgment to themselves? Well, what then is Paul saying? He's saying, listen, you can either judge your own sin or God will judge it for you, okay? Now, I want to alleviate maybe a little concern in that he's not talking about the judgment of condemnation, okay? Uh, that was taken care of on the cross of Jesus Christ. It was finished, okay? This is a judgment of correction, not condemnation, but correction. He's in reference to the chastening, disciplining hand of God. So don't think of a judge condemning a criminal, but think of a loving father disciplining uh, erring children, okay? Or a, a stubborn child, a disobedient child. Again, you might write it down so you can look it up. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11. Hebrews 12, verses 3 through 11. But I want you to note, you guys, that God's discipline can include sickness, even death. He says, many sleep. Now, we can be so stubborn in our sin that God will eventually say, you know what, that's it. I, I mean, you're out of the game. I'm just bringing you home. I'm benching you. I'm putting you on the bench. You know, I'm going to bring you home. Now, I should also say that not every illness or untimely death in the life of a believer is God's discipline, okay? But should he so choose to bring us home, I just, you hear me say it semi-frequently, God owns the editing rights to our lives. And should he choose to bring us home, then, then, you know, that's it. But when we act with such disregard toward our brothers and sisters in Christ... He says, man, you're not discerning the Lord's body, the body of Christ. Remember, Jesus said, what you do to the least of these, my brethren, you're, you're doing to me. And so we're, you know, there should be a love 
and a respect toward one another. Kindness, consideration, not self-indulgence and actions that are divisive and, hey, man, you know, whatever, it's about me and this and that. No. So again, when he says, when he speaks of judgment here, it's not condemnation, it's correction. Look at verse 32. He says, but when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be, notice, condemned with the world, okay? And let me also say this. We shouldn't be all somber or fearful in partaking of the Lord's Supper, but we should be sober, um, mindful, thankful, and joyful, you know? Now, in verse 33, he says, Therefore, my brethren, we're almost finished, guys. He says, uh, when you come together to eat, Notice, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest, he's like, man, I'm not even going to spend my time writing about the rest of the stuff. We kind of wish he would if we want to know. But he's like, the rest I'm just going to set in order when I get there. Here's the deal, guys. And uh, hey, good job. Um. Show good manners to one another, right? That's what he's saying. Show good manners to one another. Prefer one another. If you're starving, take it to a drive-thru or something. But guys, in reality, if you'd just allow me for a brief second here, this principle of, of serving others and cons- being considerate of others, it transcends the church potluck. You know what I'm saying? Being together with the body on a weekly basis is a great time to work on putting others first. Serving one another. Uh, Purpose to look at our gatherings as an opportunity not to ask, well, I don't know, will I get anything out of it today? But rather, what can I say? What can I do that will build into others, that will bless others today? And you know what? It may be signing up to minister to their kids. It may be being a part of the greet team or the parking team. It may, if you're a vocalist or, you know, a musician, it may be worship. It, it may just be as simple as grabbing a hold of someone and, and praying for them or just being, giving a word of encouragement to them. But you're building into the body of Christ. You're serving. You're setting yourself aside to serve others. And when we partake of communion, do we have, is it, is it ready to go, Dave? Okay, cool, because I didn't see the bread. I trust it's under there. We got it. Oh, it's in the cup? Great. But when we partake of communion, because I felt like it would be remiss. I know that we're typically like a first Sunday of the month kind of a crew. But I felt like it'd be remiss to go over this passage, but then not, not partake together. To remember the Lord. And when we partake, guys, it's okay to take a moment to remember the process of our Lord's death. But we also want to remember, we want to recognize and rejoice and be thankful to Him for the purpose of His death. So many times we kind of sober ourselves in the process. And that's, that's okay. But we should also rejoice in the purpose that He has loved you. The finished work of the cross has freed you from the power and the penalty of sin. Amen? So let's bow our hearts. Father, once again, our hearts well up with with thanksgiving for the truth of your word, for the power of the gospel, 
that you've set us free through faith in Jesus Christ. And now, God, I just pray that we would respond appropriately, living for you, submitted to you, that you might be glorified in us. Guys, I, uh, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I just want to say,